on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The media portrayed scenes of just terror, frankly, particularly at Elmhurst Hospital. You know, you see these lines of people that are just waiting outside with so much anxiety. And you know where that place is. You, mm-hmm. You've driven past and you've seen with your own eyes that this is, this is your backyard. Then it starts hitting very close to home. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the international radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by BD. Learn more at bardpb.com. In this episode, Kinked Wire host Ron Krakow speaks with interventional radiologist Aki Sista about the impact of COVID-19 on New York City and his practice, and how IRs might prepare for a next wave of the pandemic. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, here we are uh, now sort of at the end of the first week of July, and I know you're pretty busy up there in New York City. How have things been going for you lately with respect to COVID? Thanks for asking me about that. Thanks for having me on the program. I, you know, I think this is obviously a really interesting time across the country for IRs. And New York right now, it's almost like we can't believe where we are today. Each one of us had so much fear and trepidation just looking out across the city and then going into the hospital about what it all meant, what it meant for us personally, what it meant for our patients, what it meant for our families. And now it's like there are residual COVID patients in the hospitals, but it's night and day compared to what it was. And my heart certainly breaks for those parts of the country that are going through what we went through. And my sincere hope is that it's a speedy process that brings all of those areas to the place we are now in New York without too much loss uh, and suffering. Totally agreed. And I, I want to get into that in a few minutes. But first, I just want to get at those sort of early days for you back in, uh, I guess, March and April, uh, when uh, New York was really the, you know, in some ways, the world's epicenter of COVID. How was that for you as an IR and, and, and your institution anyway? How, how did things play out? You know, I think that one, one thing that has been a very strong part of NYU has been preparedness and organization, operational excellence. And I think that really came out when the COVID crisis hit. I think NYU's history with crisis, including Hurricane, which unexpectedly uh, really devastated the campus uh, in 2012. I actually wasn't at NYU at the time sort of made NYU particularly ready for New York-style emergencies. But that being said, it was a time when patients were flooding into the ED. I was just talking to one of the IR per diem nurses yesterday. Almost all nurses were jeopardized out of the IR section during the peak of it. And, And what she described as being a triage nurse in the ED and looking out and seeing about 10 patients who she could predict would be intubated within the next couple hours. Wow. And so there, there was absolute a, a need for quick organization amongst a quickly chaotic scene. And tents were being erected quickly outside of EDs. Healthcare workers were being exposed in spite of protective equipment. And NYU, I have to say, from all accounts, did a very, very strong job with PPE. And so not being an ED physician or an ICU physician, I wasn't privy to that front line per se. 
But when more and more people were being jeopardized to the floors and to the ICU, it really came upon us to support those individuals as many of them were not ICU trained and therefore not procedurally trained. So that was when our service in IR started going up to the ICU in the floor and started placing lines, started placing cholecystostomy tubes at the bedside and doing things that we wouldn't have normally done, but the circumstance called for it. Yeah, it sounds like a really harrowing experience as unfortunately, as you as you mentioned, uh, other folks are, are going to be or, or are actually going through that now. So it sounds like you shifted some of your framework or uh, working in terms of doing some bedside procedures and things like that. Did you notice other changes in your service line or other impacts to how your flow worked? So, you know, well, the first thing was the New York State mandated that elective procedures be postponed. And so the first thing we saw, obviously, was a big drop in our outpatient procedural volume. So this allowed us to some degree, to try to use our group as efficiently as possible, uh, keep people away from the hospital if they weren't needed, and then really pare down our staffing to really just, uh, you know, one person per hospital per day, really. Uh, Our inpatient volume took a slight dip during that time, but it actually uh, didn't dip nearly as much as the outpatient volume. So the process, initially, I think this was March and April, where this was most prominent, was mostly just inpatient work, including going up to the floors. And the way we handled that was the person who was on call at our main hospital at at the Tisch campus, that would be the person that handled the inpatients and also would go up to the floor and do lines. And I think the most lines we did in a single day was seven. Mm -hmm. uh, And we averaged three to five. And then we had the second person who is typically scheduled at Tisch be a backup to that person in case that person got overburdened. And that happened a couple times. And then we sort of eliminated some of the positions that we had previously required for, you know, staffing three people at Tisch for days that we were doing CT guided procedures because most of those elective biopsies were being postponed. But once we had that allowance to bring back elective procedures, we quickly saw an increase in our outpatient volume. And it's not back to previous levels. It's about 80 to 90% of where it was. And then we've had to staff up accordingly. You know, I'm curious too, because, you know, we're, we're certainly aware of your work in uh, thromboembolic disease and, you know, lots of reports coming out about COVID-related thromboembolic phenomenon. What did you experience with respect to that? It's a great question. And, you know, I think we're still wrapping our heads around it. The, the sentiment overall is that thrombosis has increased in COVID patients. And, and starting at least with venous thromboembolism, it, you know, there's a report out of the Netherlands that suggests a cumulative incidence of 27% in ICU COVID patients, which would be about uh, one and a half to two times more common than non-COVID intubated ICU patients. So, you know, there are some signals that's become a popular word nowadays that there is increased thrombosis on the venous side. And and it seemed to be skewed towards the PE part of VTE rather than DVT, which Mm. raised the specter of whether this is in situ thrombosis in the pulmonary vasculature as well. Mm. Um, Very, very unusual, you know, in in a normal situation. And then so the question is, with all that VTE, should we be intervening more? Well, the problem is that transporting these ICU patients all over the hospital uh, when they have COVID is a real challenge. You know, uh, it it has consequences for healthcare workers and consequences for the next set of patients. And so you really need to choose these patients carefully and do it in a sort of 
well, is this patient really going to benefit from this for uh, all of the risk that's being taken? And so while we may have been more aggressive on some of the stable submassive PEs prior to COVID, I think many practices have gone to, you know, submassive that are deteriorating or already in the massive category. On the DVT side, I think our whole hospital just moved more towards anticoagulation and, you know, phlegmasia is relatively rare. So didn't really see an uptick in, in that sort of uh, intervention. And I have to say that, you know, there was one patient, we did a kidney biopsy on the patient. He had a post-op bleed. I went in to actually embolize the bleed. And what was amazing to me was how just wires and catheters really caused thrombosis on the segmental level. And to the point that even after administering heparin and, and TPA in a patient who had bleeding, I had a segmental thrombus that I didn't want there. And, uh, you know, I just wonder mm. if translated to the venous side, whether we would have less effective interventions because thrombosis is such an ongoing and active process in COVID patients. So I think there's just so much to learn about this, you know, and it, it, there's even a lot of debate out there as to whether uh, if you have a high enough D-dimer, even if you can't diagnose PE or DVT with traditional means, you know, through CT scan, through duplex ultrasonography, and if you get some suggestive right heart strain on an echo, whether you should be therapeutically anticoagulating these patients rather than just prophylactically anticoagulating. Right. So, I mean, the, the questions are really swirling out there. And the data, unfortunately, the, the methodological limitations have not allowed us to make firm conclusions yet. Back in those early days, were you just um, routinely anticoagulating COVID patients or had you not taken that step? I'd have to check with the intensivists on what they what they settled on. Uh, no question, they definitely gave all these patients prophylactic anticoagulation. Some were more aggressive about full anticoagulation. So, for example, calf DVTs, right? The, the current chest guideline recommendations for calf DVTs is that you can anticoagulate if they're very symptomatic or if there's concern that there's going to be an ongoing risk for propagation, or you can choose to wait and do serial Dopplers. In these cases, I found that the intensivists were much more aggressive about anticoagulating even calf DVTs to the point that, you know, obviously COVID patients both clot and bleed. And so they had patients who had too much bleeding to be on full dose anticoagulations. Mm. They initiated conversations about filters in patients with calf DVTs that we hopefully had put to rest uh, before the COVID era, but they made some pretty compelling anecdotal arguments as to why we may want to reconsider that for COVID patients. Uh, not to say we acquiesced in all cases, but there were some that we had to listen very hard. Really interesting. Yeah, I just had a nice conversation with Matt Johnson a little while back, which uh, folks can listen to on a different episode about filters. And, you know, now, as you point out, with uh, sort of the wrinkles being thrown in with COVID, it's, it's it really is interesting. Do you think now, as you mentioned, that you're sort of at, what, 80, 90 percent of your sort of pre-COVID levels? Are you looking at uh, what could happen or are you taking any steps in case you, you know, hopefully not, but, you know, in case uh, you, you get a resurgence or, or anything like that? You know, I think that oh, our sincere hope is a second wave would be less intense. Anything on the same sure. level of intensity or less, I think we would handle very well. You know, you, you sort of make up protocols as you go when you are confronted with a crisis mm. like this. And, you know, it's, it comes down to basic things like staffing. Like, how do you staff the service? Where are the real needs? And we settled on something that worked quite well for the degree of crisis that we were in. You know, the census was so full at its peak that there was really no room for additional patients. So I think that if a second wave happened, 
and it was worse than the current one, I think that, you know, the whole set of beds that were erected, you know, through hotels, through a ship coming into the New York Harbor, then we would have to mm. think on that scale, I think. So if we were confronted with something similar, I think we would be pretty prepared because we settled into a, a place which made sense for our group and was able to support the hospital. It really does sound like it. And it sounds like, you know, as we get to what you brought up at the beginning, you know, now there are, unfortunately, places throughout the country, uh, and I, I happen to live in one of them in Florida, where, um, you know, our, our COVID statistics are far, far from encouraging. And, you know, in that context, I wonder, and, you know, and I would just sort of parenthetically say that politics is, is really important and, and, and everyone's got a good point to make. But for the purposes of this discussion, I really like to keep things just based on the science and the data. And the, the data shows that, you know, New York, uh, New Jersey, you know, some of the places up in the Northeast, you know, really have done quite well. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately, the, the data in places like Florida, Arizona, Texas, maybe a few others, you know, not so good. So what do you think? And, you know, and I ask honestly, partly out of just real personal curiosity, how can IRs, doctors, others of us in these troubled areas that are becoming the next New York's, if you will, what, what can we do? What can we learn from your experience? I think I'm going to have to answer a bit philosophically on this um, and avoid the politics, like you say. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there just has to be real fear in the population that something bad is going on. And then people act well towards their community, think about others, and it's no longer hard to sell it. So, you know, the media portrayed scenes of just terror, frankly. Uh, you know, it's particularly at Elmhurst Hospital. You know, you see these lines of people that are just waiting outside with so much anxiety. And, that, and you know where that place is. You, mm-hmm. You've driven past it. And you've seen with your own eyes that this is, this is your backyard. Then it starts hitting very close to home. And then people start socially distancing. They start caring about their neighbor. They start caring about what's going on around them. I think the problem with what happened in New York was it felt, New York is generally an anomaly in the United States. You know, it's a, it's a mm. big, crazy concrete jungle. And I think most people outside of New York, regardless of it, whether it's a red or blue state, uh, they look at New York as just, that's just a place where you have a bunch of people crowded in one space and stuff like yep. this happens to you. And I, you know, hopefully there's something different about what's going on and, and maybe the inherent lack of space in New York is going to not be there in Florida and Texas and Arizona and California. But I, I think what will help your jobs even more, I think most physicians understand this, understand the implications, but maybe getting on to local news channels and talking about what it means to care for patients with COVID what it means to, to really take care of the elderly in the, at this time, to take care of your parents and your grandparents. And that actually there are some young people that have really, really bad consequences to this. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very delicate balance. You never want to do any fear mongering in, in situations like this. You want to speak from the science. And the science is sort of not quite telling us the right answer in all circumstances. You know, you hear about antibody tests and you hear about the rate of, of positivity and the, rate, the mortality rate and people take that as they wish. And so I think really what ultimately hits home are scenes of horror from a hospital. That's what moved the needle in New York. 
I'm from up north originally, so I, you know, I knew, uh, you know, certainly about Elmhurst and all that. But that aside, I mean, I, I you know, I watched with everyone else, uh, you know, the scenes of Elmhurst and the reports. But, you know, you being there, being on, on site, you think that there is a palpable change when the national media focused on, you know, like a specific hospital or a specific instance in the city? I do. And I think it also woke up the local politics. There were some uh, articles talking about how both uh, Governor Cuomo and the mayor, there there were some famous quotations that they said, go out and have a haircut or something like that. And then literally two or three days later, they were very seriously starting, you know, the lockdown. So I think that those local scenes, they're hard to avoid both for politicians and for the population. So I do think that those were major turning points when the media started focusing on, on what was happening in those hospitals and in those areas. It's a really good point, I think. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I just, you know, a minute ago said, well, let's try to keep politics out of it. Yet it seems like we can't in a certain way when there's such a large global and enormous health crisis that really touches everybody, that of course, every walk of life is gonna be touched. Of course, politics is gonna be touched as well. And things we do as doctors, as you're suggesting, you know, can can impact that in a way. And I think without taking sides, maybe would have been a better way for me to put it. You know, that's that's something for us to keep in mind, as you're pointing out, as, as IRs and, you know, and as healthcare providers in our communities. Yeah. And I think that we can cite data in some of these interactions with the media. I think that the beautiful thing about the United States is that it is so diverse and it has this diversity of opinions and it really forces everybody to look at every viewpoint. You know, the, the Japanese experience is amazing. There was no shutdown in Japan. And, you know, it's a very lean population. So maybe just their vasculature is much more healthy. And so the likelihood of getting severe COVID might be lower in the Japanese population because they have fewer comorbidities. I, I don't know. But they are very, very disciplined about mask wearing. And they're, they're still trying to tease out why Japan has so few cases and so few uh, hospitalizations and deaths. It really, what they've sort of focused on is just their very disciplined mask wearing. And so mm-hmm. maybe our society for a time, even if we want to stay open and keep things moving along and keep our livelihoods awake, maybe we just need to adjust a little bit and not a lot. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not going to pretend to be the guru epidemiologist on, on the right thing to do for COVID. But I think we have to consider our micro environment when we approach the media or the media approaches us and know our audience and, and know what resonates that to, to achieve the greatest benefit for the time we have with the media. Because clearly in, in a place like some, some, some places in Florida, if one says you must stay at home, socially distance and never go out, you're going to meet with a lot of resistance. I mean, New Yorkers mm-hmm. were brought with this whole thing. And, and we also have to keep in mind the toll that takes on people mentally. And, you know, the other things people don't go in for that they perhaps should go in for, you know, the acute right. coronary syndromes and the stroke outside mm-hmm. of COVID. But, you know, I think that the local audience needs to be considered is, is I guess, my point. Yeah, excellent points. All, all really thought provoking. And, yeah. you know, as IRs or, you know, and it really just as physicians, I think one thing we're learning from you and from COVID um, is, you know, we're having to wear some other hats than we may used to be wearing. 
as we sort of round things out here, I want to ask a, a little bit of a prognosticating question for you. These are always hard to answer, but just from everything you've been through in New York, from your knowledge on thrombombolic disease and just everything else, where do you see things, say, six months to a year from now in terms of us in the United States and the world and, and COVID? And, and don't worry, we're not going to call you back in a year and, and, and see whether you lined up or not. Just curious to hear your predictions. So um, have you heard of that book, Generations? It was written in 1991. It predicted a crisis in 2020. And it did so based on the the cyclical (laughs) nature of American history. So it breaks it down into epics. And each epic has about four generational cycles. And I, I forget the number, but somewhere between every 80 to 90 years, there's a major crisis that causes a major upheaval. And I think we're pretty much seeing COVID-19 be that crisis. And we're seeing its manifestations everywhere. So obviously, social justice is on everybody's mind right now, uh, rightfully so. And I think that there's the social, societal, cultural aspect of this revolution. I think it's going to have major implications for how we think about finances, healthcare disparity, wealth disparity. I think it's going to have major implications for technology. I think a lot of us are doing things electronically we never would have considered doing electronically before. There's some bad things that are, come with that, including social isolation, but there have been some incredible advances that were just forced out of this time. So telemedicine, as, a, as an example, uh, NYU's telemedicine skyrocketed during COVID. And, sure. and as IRs, I think we really need to pay attention to that because if we can get our footprint like PAD out into the rural areas of the country, we can make impacts beyond the local turf wars that we all face in a really meaningful way. I think the person that really speaks eloquently about that is Kathy Kroll. Uh, so I don't want to take any credit for that idea. She's been really talking to the IR community about that for a long time. So I think my prediction is that 2021 around this time will look very, very different uh, societally, financially, and technologically. Really good stuff. Uh, this is incredibly thought-provoking. I really appreciate it and certainly wish you all the best. And hopefully, as you said at the beginning, we'll, we'll all see our numbers trend down and, and we can all sort of evolve and work together into whatever will come in 2021. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Warren. Really enjoyed being a part of the program. And uh, I wish you and your colleagues all the best down there and, and that this just passes over quickly. And my thoughts and prayers are with you. That was Dr. Aki Sista talking about the latest status of COVID-19 in New York. We thank Dr. Sista for his time, BD for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King's Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakow. Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.sirweb.org.